Alright, hello, I'm Anthony Day, and welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 7th of September. Now that we've left August behind us, you may think that the silly season is over. There were many silly stories in the press, but many serious issues continued to be serious. So here's a roundup of what you may have missed. I've called this episode Hold Tight because there's an awful lot to get through. The first and most important thing, of course, is to welcome our newest patron, Michelle Marks. Welcome, Michelle, and thanks for supporting the Sustainable Futures Report. If you too would like to be a patron and contribute a small amount each month to support the Sustainable Futures Report, you'd be more than welcome. Just hop across to patreon.com slash sfr, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr, where you'll find all the details. And let me take this opportunity to thank all my patrons for their continuing support. I've always said that sustainability is a vast subject. Just to give you a flavour of that, in this episode I'll be talking about energy, including fracking and transport, about waste food and waste plastic, about climate change, about investment strategies, about floods and fires and climate change denial, and we have a book review as well. There are some informed insights from Jeremy Leggett, and there might be a bit of politics too. Remember, the full text of this episode is on the blog at all the W's sustainablefutures.report, where you will find links to the sources of all my stories. Here we go then, let's start with energy. Have we finally found the Philosopher's Stone? You know, the compound sought by the alchemists of old, which would turn lead into gold. The idea of a pumpable liquid to fuel electric cars seems to me to be in that category, or at very least, it seems to be too good to be true. Researchers Cronin, Chen and Symes say in the abstract from their article in the Nature Chemistry Journal, We present a polyoxoanion that can act either as a high-performance redox flow battery electrolyte or as a mediator in an electrolytic cell for the on-demand generation of hydrogen. Some storage batteries contain a liquid called an electrolyte. Older readers may remember when car batteries contained sulfuric acid as an electrolyte and the cells had to be topped up with distilled water every now and then. It seems that this new process could be used in electric car batteries. The exhausted electrolyte liquid would be drained out and replaced with a new energy-rich batch. If this could be done as quickly as refueling a petrol or diesel car, the range anxiety problem with electric cars, the worry that the battery will run out and take hours to recharge, leaving the driver stranded, will be solved at a stroke. Of course, there'll be a few issues to be ironed out. Could this liquid be dispensed through existing petrol pumps? Can it be easily transported or does it need to be pressurised? How is it produced and how much energy is needed for the process? What will happen to the exhausted electrolyte extracted from the batteries? A practical solution may be some way off, but we need to support more research like this. More news from the automotive sector. 
In August, Greenpeace took direct action against Volkswagen UK by blockading their head office to try and wake them up to the diesel pollution crisis. It's time for VW to do the right thing and ditch diesel. VW has been getting a bad press in Mexico as well for a story which has been relayed by media from the Washington Post to CBC to the Daily Telegraph. Apparently, Volkswagen is curbing the use of hail cannons outside its factory in Puebla, Mexico, after it was accused by local farmers of causing a drought in the region, leading to heavy losses of crops. VW used the cannons to protect newly built vehicles from hailstone damage. The devices emit shock waves into the sky, which are believed to prevent the chunks of ice from forming, but there's a lack of scientific evidence that the cannons actually impact weather conditions and minimise hail, and their legitimacy has long been criticised. Still, farmers in Puebla claim that the cannons have led to a lack of much-needed rainfall. The hail cannons are affecting the Earth's cycles, said Gerardo Perez, a leader of the farmers. When the devices blast away, the sky literally clears and it simply doesn't rain, he said. To cover the crop losses, the farmers are demanding that Volkswagen pay nearly $4 million in compensation. Bad news, but the most damning report came from The Guardian. Drivers in Europe have paid €150 billion Euros more on fuel than they would have if their vehicles had performed as well on the road as in official laboratory-based tests, according to a new report. Car companies have legally gamed official tests of fuel economy for many years by, for example, using very hard tyres during tests or taking out equipment to make cars lighter. The gap between test and actual performance has soared from 9% in 2000 to 42% today. Analysts at research and campaign group Transport and Environment have now calculated that this difference cost motorists in Europe €150 billion, Euro, or £136 billion, pounds, in extra fuel between 2000 and 2017. UK drivers paid €3.5 billion Euro more in 2017 alone, and a total of €24 billion Euros since 2000. A new, more realistic lab test is now in place, but the European Commission uncovered new evidence in July that this was also being gamed by car makers. This means the increases in fuel efficiency being demanded by the EU as part of its action on climate change are still being undermined, and drivers will continue to use more fuel than policymakers intend. OK, that's hitting drivers in the pocket, and it's frustrating attempts to curb climate change, but what's more worrying is the effect of poor air quality on health. CNN reports that air pollution could be more damaging to our health than previously thought, according to a new study which found that prolonged exposure to dirty air has a significant impact on our cognitive abilities, especially in older men. Hmm. A study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences shows that breathing polluted air causes a steep reduction in scores on verbal and maths tests. Meanwhile, the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health has declared pollution as the greatest health risk to the world population, of which air pollution is by far the greatest contributor. The principal outdoor pollutants are particulates, PM10s, PM2.5s and ultrafine particles. 
both primary from exhaust and tyre and brake wear, and secondarily from atmospheric chemical interactions of pollutants. In 2016, the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health published a groundbreaking report highlighting the serious health issues being created by air pollution in the UK, with an estimated 40,000 deaths from cardiovascular and lung disease brought forward and substantially greater effects on morbidity from a wide range of diseases. An important conclusion from this report was that air pollution acts across the entire life course from conception to old age. Exposure to pollutants in early childhood contributing to excess morbidity and mortality in later years. Falsifying emissions data is clearly both cynical and irresponsible. It might not be going too far to classify it as a crime against humanity, as it affects all people for all of their lives, motorists or not. Transform, the Journal of IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, reports that the UK is on the brink of eradicating coal from its electricity mix during the summer months. OK, we've had an exceptional summer, but coal accounted for a record low 1% of power over June this year. Climate Action also has the story. Researchers at Imperial College London analysed official data from the National Grid over the months of April, May and June, they say. For the third summer in a row, coal is edging closer to extinction in Britain, commented lead author Dr Ian Staffel, noting that coal supplied a mere 1.3% of electricity over the quarter. Its share also fell below 1% for the first time across June. The times at which coal is running over summer is at a bare minimum, Staffel added, highlighting that plants are usually called upon to provide grid stability during periods of low demand. The report goes on to state that Britain likely could run without coal all summer, given that the remaining fleet operated at only 3% of its maximum capacity. Across the pond, California has given fossil fuel-derived energy a hefty shove towards obsolescence after legislators voted to require that 100% of the state's electricity should come from carbon-free sources. The bill, which will need to be approved by the state Senate and the Governor, will require a complete shift to clean energy such as solar and wind by 2045. It would also demand that electric utilities source 60% of their power from renewable sources by 2030, up from the current target of 50%. Turning to another source of fossil fuel energy, EcoWatch reports a stunning victory for Indigenous nations as Canada halts Trans-Mountain Pipeline expansion. I mentioned this dispute in a recent episode. Alberta is exploiting vast tar sands to extract bituminous oil, but can only make the project viable by transporting the output by pipeline across British Columbia to the port at Vancouver. The article goes on. A Canadian court quashed approval of the Trans-Mountain Pipeline expansion on Thursday, a major setback for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whose government agreed to purchase the controversial project from Kinder Morgan, for four and a half billion Canadian dollars, or three and a half billion US dollars, in May. It's a stunning victory for indigenous groups and environmentalists opposed to the project, which is designed to nearly triple the amount of tar sands transported 
from Alberta to the coast of British Columbia. The Federal Court of Appeal ruled that the National Energy Board's review, as explained by the Canadian press, was so flawed that the federal government could not rely on it as a basis for its decision to approve the expansion. The project has been at the centre of widespread protests from environmental groups and First Nations ever since November 2016, when Prime Minister Trudeau approved a $7.4 billion expansion of the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline that would increase the transport of Alberta tar sands oil from the current 300,000 barrels per day to 890,000 barrels per day and increase tanker traffic nearly sevenfold through the Burrard Inlet. Specifically, the court said it was an unjustifiable failure that the National Energy Board did not consider the environmental impacts of the increased tanker traffic. If you remember, the Burrard Inlet links the port of Vancouver to the Pacific Ocean. In addition to concerns about the environmental impact of the pipeline, there were also concerns about the tankers taking the product away to Asian markets. The inlet is crossed by a string of islands, making navigation far from straightforward, particularly in winter. The court's judgment could be appealed a final time to the Supreme Court of Canada, but for the moment construction must stop and the government must revise its review of the project, including its negotiations with the Indigenous peoples. It looks as though the Canadian government has bought a white elephant, which could remain in limbo indefinitely. Still on energy, Jeremy Leggett published a review of fracking last month. You can find the link on the blog at sustainablefutures.report. He calls it why American shale is heading for a crash and fracking in the UK is doomed to costly failure. So he's not pulling any punches. I recommend you go and have a look at it, but I'll just highlight a couple of points. Leggett reports that US fracking is consuming cash far faster than it's generating it, and he calls it a giant Ponzi scheme, which will never repay its investments. According to Bloomberg, there's a major threat to the viability of fracked gas from the rapidly improving solar, wind and battery technology, which is driving energy prices below the level where fracked fossil fuels can be profitable. California's plan to phase out fossil fuels mentioned above just ramps up the pressure. There is also concern that many fracking wells are becoming depleted much more quickly than expected. New pipelines will never pay for themselves if there is no product to put through them. Quite apart from viability, there are serious environmental concerns. The US Environment Protection Agency now accepts that fracking can contaminate drinking water. Farmers are suing water companies for mining aquifers to extract the thousands of gallons of water needed for fracking operations. 70,000 fish were killed in Ohio after a fracking spill, but nobody knows exactly what killed them because operator Halliburton has no legal requirement to reveal the chemicals it uses. On the face of it, gas is a cleaner fuel than coal, but the methane leaks associated with extracting the gas can make it more damaging than coal. The EPA has found that methane leakage is far higher than expected and leakage in the US has global climate consequences. There is no fracking currently in the UK, but the government is keen that it should start as soon as possible in England and is doing everything to smooth the planning path 
and to buy off opposition by promising hefty grants to the local communities where fracking is planned. Scotland, Germany, the state of Victoria in Australia, France, New Zealand and the US state of Monterey are some of the states which have all banned fracking. But the UK government insists that fracking is an essential part of England's energy future. One of the problems in the UK, of course, is that nobody in government is giving any serious attention at the moment to anything apart from Brexit, the UK's planned departure from the European Union. And each of the two main parties is totally split from cabinet level downwards. Well, after all that, let's talk rubbish. Waste. Waste has featured in the news over the past few weeks. A quite shocking report published in the Journal of Cleaner Production reveals that more than a third of farmed fruit and vegetables never reaches supermarket shelves because it is misshapen or the wrong size. A third. More than 30%. One apple or potato or cucumber or strawberry or turnip in three is thrown away. A University of Edinburgh study found that more than 50 million tonnes of fruit and vegetables grown across Europe were discarded each year. This was in part because they did not meet consumers' expectations of how they should look. Meanwhile, plastic waste still makes the news. BBC News quotes the Treasury saying that there is high public support for using the tax system to reduce waste from single-use plastics. A consultation on how taxes could tackle the rising problem and promote recycling attracted 162,000 responses. Treasury Minister Robert Jenrick said the government was looking at smart, intelligent incentives to get plastic producers to take responsibility. Reports suggest a levy on manufacturers and some disposable plastic products may be introduced in the budget which will take place in November. It could include measures such as a tax on single-use coffee cups. Climate Action tells us about a new solar-powered watch made from recycled plastic. Two French designers are leading the way to reducing plastic pollution, they say, by creating a watch made from recycled bottles. The new eco-friendly watch is named Awake. It is made from plastic waste, recycled stainless steel and is powered by solar energy. Apparently this watch will cost about $300. I must admit I'm tempted, although my £65 watch still works perfectly well. If I were to buy a new watch, it would be nice to think that it's been made with minimal impact on the environment. I think the new watch's main contribution will be to make people remember that recycling is important. Scientists have been telling us about the dangers of plastic pollution for years. Then David Attenborough made a film about it, and suddenly everybody's aware. You can never tell what will tri trigger the tipping point. Only rejoice when something does. Scientists have been telling us about climate change for years. The consequences of the long hot summer we've had may have the same tipping point effect. There has certainly been no shortage of weather stories in the media and people are beginning to think that climate change might just be real. At the beginning of August, new scientists reported on California's worst wildfire in history. It was now the size of Los Angeles, they said. 
In June and July, fire burnt across Saddleworth Moor in northern England. It may have been caused by arson, but the hot, dry weather helped it burn for some three weeks. A series of wildfires in Greece began in the coastal areas of Attica in July, and by mid-August, 96 people were confirmed dead. In Sweden, in northern Europe, wildfires burned more than 24,000 hectares of land, with authorities battling 80 fires across the Nordic country at one point. Some of these fires were burning north of the Arctic Circle. The situation in Sweden wasn't helped by an outbreak of arson, which saw some 100 cars set on fire in different cities across the country. The South China Morning Post reports that in Japan, more than 200 people were killed in historic flooding, followed by an extreme heatwave, and then a typhoon battered the country again, all of this in July alone. As I write this, the BBC is reporting that Japan has been hit by one of the strongest typhoons in 25 years, with officials warning more than a million people to evacuate their homes. Typhoon Jebe made landfall in western areas, bringing heavy rain and reports of winds up to 172 kilometres an hour. That's over 100 miles an hour. In Osaka Bay, it swept a tanker into a bridge, and in Kyoto, parts of the train station roof came down. In Calabria, Italy, torrential rain in August led to flash flooding. Waters tearing down a narrow gorge killed 11 hikers. In Kerala, India, floods caused the death of at least 324 people. Some 220,000 were left homeless and thousands were trapped after unusually heavy rain. The state is facing the worst floods in a hundred years, said Chief Minister Penarayi Vijayan. Penarayi Vijayan. Roads were damaged, mobile phone networks down, and international airport closed. The bad news goes on all over the world. As I said, people are beginning to mutter about climate change. Writing in the Daily Mail, former Conservative Party leader Michael Howard said, 30 years ago, Margaret Thatcher warned of man-made global warming. I fear this blazing summer is proving her right. The Guardian's headline was, Domino effect of climate events could move Earth into a hothouse state. It went on to explain that a domino-like cascade of melting ice, warming seas, shifting currents and dying forests could tilt the earth into a hothouse state beyond which human efforts to reduce emissions would be increasingly futile. The paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I do hope we are wrong, but as scientists we have a responsibility to explore whether this is real, said Johan Rockström, Executive Director of the Stockholm Resilience Centre. We need to know now. It's so urgent. This is one of the most existential questions in science. He warned that the two degrees centigrade target set by the Paris Agreement might not be enough to avoid this situation. Worryingly, it's generally agreed that the commitments made by the countries signing the Paris Agreement will not be enough to meet the target, especially as Trump's America has turned its back on it. Jeremy Leggett, here he is again, provides us with a summary of a recent note to investors issued by Jeremy Grantham, Chief of chief Investment Strategist of Grantham, Mayo and Van Otterloo, a firm with more than 118 billion US dollars in assets under management. 
Grantham calls his note the race of our lives, and he goes through the threats to the future from climate change. He shows his company's portfolio breakdown. 39% in clean energy, 17% in energy efficiency, 19% in agriculture, and the rest spread over smart grids, copper and water. These are his recommendations. Vote for green politicians, and that can include some Republicans. Lobby investment firms to be greener and to lean on their portfolio companies to do the same. Do not grant the oil companies immunity. They have been complicit in a global cover-up of data, funded propaganda, delayed decarbonisation, and they've recklessly endangered us. Consume with decarbonisation in the front of mind. He closes, We are racing to protect not just our portfolios, not just our grandchildren, but our species. So get to it. Of course, the denialists are always with us. A recent headline said, Australian PM dumps key climate policy to stave off leadership revolt. Sorry, Mr Turnbull, it didn't work. Although there's no guarantee that the new Prime Minister will introduce wide-ranging green policies. Probably completely the opposite. In the US, the Illinois Attorney General is suing Trump Tower over the 20 million gallons of water that it takes from the Chicago River each day. It uses the water for cooling, which raises its temperature, and then discharges it back into the river with no regard for any environmental consequences. A sinister story comes from Open Democracy UK. 20 years ago, and without any public debate, an arcane international agreement entered into force. The Energy Charter Treaty gives sweeping powers to foreign investors in the energy sector, including the peculiar privilege to directly sue states in secret international tribunals arbitrated over by three private lawyers. Companies are claiming dizzying sums in compensation for government actions that have allegedly damaged their investments, either directly through expropriation or indirectly through regulations of virtually any kind. Swedish energy giant Vattenfall, for example, sued Germany for 1.4 billion euros in compensation over environmental restrictions imposed on a coal-fired power plant. The lawsuit was settled after the government agreed to relax the restrictions protecting the local river and its wildlife. Since 2012, Vattenfall has been suing Germany again, seeking 4.3 billion plus interest for lost profits from two nuclear reactors, following the country's phase-out of atomic energy after the Fukushima disaster. Several utility companies are pursuing the EU's poorest member state, Bulgaria, seeking hundreds of millions of euros because the government reduced soaring electricity costs for consumers. And these are only a few examples. We covered this in a previous episode, and I read a report recently that the US fossil fuel industry was considering similar action. It wanted to sue the government to repeal environmental legislation that was making its operations unviable. Let's ignore the effect of fossil fuels on the viability of the planet. There's got to be good news. Back at the beginning of the year, the city authorities in Cape Town, South Africa, predicted that the city would run out of water on the 21st of April. That didn't, in fact, happen because they introduced 
stringent water rationing regulations. They were able to negotiate with farmers to release some of the water in their reservoirs and they did have some rain. Since then they have had exceptional rain and the reservoirs are now back up to 80% capacity. No let up on the rationing regulations however. I think people in Cape Town have come to realise how valuable water really is. A lesson for us all perhaps. Good news for the shipping industry in that they in that the North Atlantic sea ice is receding in the hot weather so that navigation around the top of North America is possible. A new 42,000 tonne container ship, the Venta Maersk, has been built for the route. Good news for the shipping industry but maybe not such good news for the rest of us because even without collisions or capsizes there will be environmental damage from the passage of these vessels. The fact that the Northwest Passage is open itself underlines the truth of climate change and global warming. And now, before you go, we have a book review and an interview with Clive Wilson, the author. This will be the first of two book reviews for September. My first thought was to ask who reads books these days? We are so overwhelmed with sources of information from multiple television channels to social media to internet search engines and podcasts, quite apart from the traditional newspapers, magazines and print advertising. We are showered with so much information that many people have a very limited attention span and who indeed would read a book when you get all the answers online? The answer, of course, is that while you can search for anything online, it's frequently difficult to judge the accuracy of what you find or even to complete the picture of what you're looking for. On the other hand, the author of a book has done the research, often over many months or years. They have verified and cross-checked the information and assembled it all in a logical sequence for you to absorb. I don't know whether Clive Wilson thought specifically of attention spans when he wrote designing the purposeful world. But his book certainly does everything it can to catch the reader's attention and keep it. It's not a very thick book. It's a very manageable size, but Clive is asking the reader questions and giving space for written answers from the first page on. In fact, he asks you to write down your thoughts no less than seven times in the first chapter and ends it with a checklist to test your understanding. This is a pattern repeated throughout the book. This is not a book that anyone is going to fall asleep over. Designing the Purposeful World explores the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the UN SDGs, how they affect all of us and, and how we all can make a difference. If you haven't heard of the UN SDGs, you should go to sustainabledevelopment.un.org or maybe just read the book. It starts from why anyone can make a difference and ends with a summary of the story so far and a call to take action to promote the SDGs and to help fulfil them. There are 17 goals and along the way Clive demonstrates how they fit in with our lives, with the organisations we work for, with the companies we buy from and with society at large. I've had an opportunity to talk to Clive Wilson and to ask him to expand on some of his ideas. So my first question, Clive, is who's this book for? Well, it's really a book for anybody. And I know that's an easy answer, um, but 
It's particularly useful to people who are running organisations, for leaders in government, for people involved in education, and for people who just want to align themselves and what they do to a better future. Right. Well, as I said, you engage people from the beginning. You ask people, first of all, to have a look at 2030. Look at what they think the world should be like, or maybe what they think it ought to be like. And then you move on for reasons of hope into chapter two and talk about Al Gore and the things that he's been promoting. He, he talks particularly about technology and how things will change. And as we know, there is so much technology, so much research going on. One thing I picked up, you said that the Ethical Consumer Markets report of 2016 said that 53% of the UK population are choosing to avoid buying products and services over concerns about ethical reputation. Now that sounds to me like a really good thing, but I wonder whether it's absolutely genuine. Is it what people do is, or is it what they say they do? Well, that's a good question. Of course, not being part of that particular piece of research, I don't know. I can only go on what was printed. However, what I have noticed is that there is an increasing amount of attention, both public attention in terms of people's buying habits, but also in people's investing habits. So for the first time ever, there are now um, ethical investment funds specifically aligned to the SDGs. Uh, and so you can actually choose to uh, invest your pension, your stocks, shares, with organisations who claim to be aligned to the SDGs. And of course, the more that this goes on, um, the more that people will demand evidence uh, that, that people are as aligned as they say they are. So I'm talking now about the corporations. Uh, and of course, it will not be sufficient just to look at the corporations themselves, but it's their whole supply chain, because it's okay having the immediate operations of any company aligned to sustainable development. Um, but if they're buying products or services from people who are, for example, involved in child labour or something like that, then uh, that's not really on. So I think it's the same with us and our buying patterns. We may have some attention in some areas. You know, if I think of my own buying habits, there are some things that I won't buy because of, uh, of its source. But then are there other things that when I look a little bit deeper, I find that uh, actually things are not as, uh, as rosy as they may seem. I mean, even something as simple as chicken, you know, I, yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm not quite a vegetarian uh, as yet, although I seem to be heading in that direction. But uh, if I look at uh, chicken that we buy for the home, we always go free range and ethically sourced chickens. Do we do the same when we go out and have a pizza in a, in a shop? Do we inquire? And this is the sort of thing that I do now, but it took me longer to get into that habit than it did the, uh, the, the most obvious one of uh, checking the chicken itself, if that, that makes sense. That is interesting. When you do ask these questions in restaurants, what sort of response do you get? Do you get a sensible response? It tends to depend on the restaurant and the way that it's managed. And um, in the better restaurants, you get the answer. They say they can actually uh, back it up with some evidence and, and may respond and say, yeah, all our chickens are sourced from and their supply is, and you get the, you get the real answer. So you can tell when you start to delve deeper as to where things uh, may come from. But my suspicion is that it begins with an intention 
to inquire, a curiosity on, the, on behalf of the purchaser to begin to ask these questions and then gradually assemble the behaviours in their lives that uh, ensure that we have the future for, for generations to come that we need to have. It seems to me that uh, reading your personal story, which forms the third chapter, mm. that the SDGs came along just at the right time for you and the path that you've already <laughs> chosen suddenly crossed with the path of the SDGs which were just being developed at that time and you've latched onto them as actually fulfilling or being totally in line with the way you wanted to go. Is that a fair summary? Well, yes it is, because prior to writing Designing the Purposeful World, I wrote Designing the Purposeful Organisation, which was really about how on earth do you align everything that happens in any business or any organisation to the inspiring purpose um, that is making a difference in the world, depending on what the organisation is. And as I wrote that book, which really summarised the uh, practices that we've been adopting uh, here at Prime East, uh, which is a leadership development consultancy, um, wh when we got to the end of that book and had confirmed all the things that you need to put in place, which I can go into if uh, readers want me to, um, I suddenly realised that the same method could be applied to the whole world. You know, for example, we need to have an inspiring purpose that purpose needs to be translated into a vision that people can get their minds around. And then, for example, without going into everything, uh, putting in place appropriate processes, systems and behaviours that support the delivery. So in musing about that, um, just as I was concluding the writing of Designing the Purposeful Organisation, um, th this was about 2014. And of course, in 2014, I read at Christmas time the first draft of the working party for the Sustainable Development Goals and lo and behold I thought well that's exactly what I was musing about in the final chapter. So I suddenly realised I had another book to write. <laughs> <laughs> yes you mentioned also talking about your background that you worked as a project manager and subsequently as a program manager but one of the things you say that came out of that was that the success of projects and the whole program depended yes. on engaging and you have you talk about engaging absolutely everyone in the SDGs. Yes. We've just been talking about smart meters. Yes. And I think the same thing applies. How do you engage people? Because the success of almost any project, or certainly of any change, depends on engaging people and getting yes. them committed to it. So what's the Philosopher's Stone? Can you tell me how you achieve that? Well, um, Keeping above the topic of smart metering for a moment, we can delve into that if yeah. you wish, but uh, just looking at sustainability, the beauty of that topic is that what I've discovered um, is if you ask the question of any audience, what is the world that you'd like to see for a particular time horizon, and, and the time horizon that I've given them is 2030, because that's the time horizon for the SDGs, you always or I have always got exactly the same answer. Not similar answers, but exactly the same answer. And I've now had the privilege of working with audiences on three continents and people from the age of seven to well beyond 70 in organisations, in professional institutions, in schools, in universities. And when you ask the question, what is the world that you can see which will be right for future generations? It is always a world that is totally aligned with the SDGs. 
But engagement is exactly that. So I never start those workshops by telling them about the SDGs. I ask them to look into their hearts and say, what's the world you would like to see? And that's the best way to engage people, not to lecture them on what governments have signed up to, but to just say, what, what is in your heart for the future? And, uh, and when they realise that their collective sense of future is exactly the same as the one that governments, world leaders have signed up for, then you can ask other questions like, well, bearing in mind that we're all different, which of these 17 goals particularly resonates with you? Because we are all different. We all see this same world through slightly different lenses. So my background is one of uh, having been an electrical engineer in my early days. And so not surprisingly, things like clean energy and climate change particularly resonate with me. Um, but everybody else will see it completely different. So engagement to me is about saying, what can you see? What particularly inspires you? And what is it that's in your heart that you'd like to turn into action? So it's not about making people feel guilty. It's about actually giving people the opportunity to realize that whatever they do um, is likely to contribute to a common agenda. How do we keep up the momentum? How do we keep them focused after they've been to the lecture, after they've read the book? Because this is something which is not something you do once. It's a, it's a change yes. of lifestyle, isn't it? How do, how do you keep that in the forefront of people's well, minds? Well, this, this is an ongoing challenge. Um, often I get to speak or engage with an audience and then I'm away engaging with another audience. Um, my, my hope is uh, that organisations, places of education will continue the dialogue long after I've passed and gone on to a, gone on to a different audience. Uh, and I do know that um, in, on the occasions where I get to go back and revisit a group of people that things have happened. Uh, this is particularly easy, for example, with schools, because you can ring up a school and say, what's happened since we, since we ran the workshop? Uh, and there have been some quite amazing things that have happened. Uh, as you know, Anthony, we, we run a, a branch of the United Nations Association here at Prime East, and I've had the, uh, the joy of people who have come to that meeting with ideas, turned them into action, and then a few months down the line, I get to hear of the things that have actually, uh, actually happened. And I'm a great believer that um, change happens with a single step. So if you can just take people to that next step, then you can begin to, to make things happen. In organisations, um, it's about really engaging as wide as you can with, for example, the leaders and the workforce to get them to make commitments which they can follow through on and, and then you can go back and, uh, and check. Sadly, I don't get to do that as often as I would like. Mm -hmm. When we come to the final chapter, like all the other chapters, you've got a checklist. Yes. And the very last item on the checklist is I shall drop a note to the author giving my feedback. Yes. Has anybody done that and what would you like them to say? Well, one or two have, not as many, never as many as I would like. I suppose I'd never be satisfied. Um, but I have had um, reports back. I have had people who have said, Do you know, um, reading the book, doing various things, and some of these are actually on reviews on Amazon so people can go in and see them, have uh, actually changed my life. I've done something and now my whole world has moved on in a different uh, direction. Uh, the one that springs to mind is Jane, who um, uh, actually uh, was prompted to do some work in Zambia with uh, schools and, uh, uh, and with wildlife. And uh, 
and she said that this thinking was what prompted her to actually step out and, and do something do something different. I've heard all sorts of commitments from people of things that they intended to do and uh, and, and if even half of those have turned into action I'll be I'll be very happy. And there are some case studies in the book of people who have, who have done things. I think the most profound one was probably uh, uh, members of an organisation called ISEC, um, who uh, it's, a, it's the world's largest youth-led youth movement, and they committed to take the SDGs to every young person on the planet, which I thought was a very bold uh, thing at the time. Yeah. Uh, this actually happened in New York. We were working in the, in the UN uh, building in New York, and, uh, and I've since heard that they have actually reached millions of kids. Now, that's not yet every <laughs> child on the planet, but they're certainly in progress to, to, to do that. And that case study is in the book. At the moment, in both the UK and the United States, the political scene is in some turmoil. Yes. And I think there's a danger that the politicians are being focused on a very narrow range of issues, mm. notably Brexit in the UK, and neglecting other things. And we do need the politicians behind us in this sort of thing. Yes. So in view of that, are you optimistic? Are you still optimistic that we can actually make the changes that we need to actually create a, a sustainable world? Well, the world works in, in funny ways. And uh, like many people, I, I get, do get disappointed when I see the attention of politicians and leaders being diverted to things that are less important than, for example, peace on our planet and climate change. And, um, and at the same time, I think what happens is that uh, when, when these backlashes occur, people also... Um, become energized to do the opposite so in the wake of uh, you know for example the political situations in the uk and the us there is a growing move and i notice it of people who say why are we focusing on that these other things climate change peace in our time are really important and so um my belief is my optimism my hope if you like is that um, there will be some temporary passing phases, maybe you know, three or four years or something like that, uh, and then we will move into uh, more energised and positive directions. And the other thing to remember, Anthony, is that um, whilst this is happening, there are still loads of people doing some amazing things that will um, deliver uh, a better future for um, future generations. And is there another book on the way? Oh, gosh. Um, I wasn't expecting you to ask that, but there is. Uh, and the book has got a working title of Supercharged, um, How Quantum Consciousness is Changing People, Organisations and the World. And the logic of that book, it's related, as you, as you might guess. The logic of that book is that what I've discovered in the work that I do is that if you place, and the science behind this, and the book will go into that, but if you place any person or any organisation into a context, a purpose will arise. You know, this happens with all life at every level, but um, you're particularly focusing on humanity. If you put a person into a context, a purpose will arise. And what I've discovered working with audiences on sustainability is that... Um, that purpose 
is a really positive one. And if we can harness that, then um, actually we will be able to help positive change uh, on our planet. And it's simply by asking questions like, so who are you? Whether that's an individual or an organisation. Um, what do you care about? And what's going on in your world? When people um, are conscious of the answers to those sorts of questions in their psyche, um, they quickly become aligned to a very positive purpose. So part of it is providing the space in which people can, can ask those questions. And that's what I'm hoping my... Um, next book or one of my next books will be about and have you got a publication date yet no I, I deliberately haven't set one because uh, I'm also doing a lot of research around the, the subject uh, research into um, weird and wonderful things like quantum physics and consciousness um, which will inform the uh, the publication so I don't want to push it before the learning has happened if that makes sense well, let us know and we'll look forward to it. Thank Clive you. Wilson, thank you very much for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you. I was talking to Clive Wilson. His book, Designing the Purposeful World, is published by Routledge and available from all good bookshops. Next time, I shall be looking at A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains by Catherine Wheatman and published by Kogan Page. And that's it for this edition of the Sustainable Futures Report, which is by far the longest one to date. But as I explained at the start, there is just so much to catch up on. As usual, there are links to all my sources on the blog, which you can find at all the W's, sustainablefutures.report. Thank you for listening. And if you're a patron, thank you for your support. And thanks again to Michelle Marks for becoming our latest patron. The next edition of the Sustainable Futures Report will be on the 21st of September and I'm seriously thinking about resuming a weekly publication schedule. I'll explain why next time. I'll also mention smart meters and tell you about my attempts to buy an electric car. I expect there will be quite a lot of other stories to bring you as well. If you have ideas or information or feedback, don't hesitate to share at mail at anthony-day.com. And don't forget that there are links to the sources of all these stories on the blog at all the W's sustainablefutures.report. In the meantime, thanks once again for listening. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Bye for now. Music